The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. This can be found on page 1047 in the Blue Church Bibles. Uh, You can follow along in your leaflet or on the screen. The parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table heard with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, All the surveys I've done in Australia indicate that there are about 5% of Australians who regularly go to church on on a Sunday. That's the sort of statistic that we're getting Uh, feedback on. And when Australians are asked why they don't go to church, the reasons why they avoid church, the 95%, the sort of reasons they give are, it's full of hypocrites, right? They're always asking for money and it's boring, right? Church is so boring, so why would I want to go there? Which I think is such a tragedy because that is the last thing that church should actually be, right? It should not be boring when we gather as God's people to encounter the living God. Now, I suspect if we did a survey on heaven, we'd probably get fairly similar sorts of results. Uh, What does the average Australian think about when they think about what heaven is like? Are going to be something like, um, heaven would be like sitting on a cloud all day learning how to play elevator music on a harp or something like that, and that just goes on for a time. Or, you know, uh, you know think of an eight-verse hymn accompanied by an organ that you just play over and over and over again. You know, we get to the end of eight verses, and I say, good work, let's sing that again, you know, and we go through, you know, for eternity. You know, the same sort of eight-verse hymn that just gets repeated again and again and again. When the Bible talks about heaven, though, it talks about it being like the best party you have ever been to, only better. That's the sort of image that the Bible often portrays. So when I think about um, the best parties I've ever been to, I'm a bit too old to remember my own wedding reception. Uh, uh, It's sort of dimming in the background at this point. But in recent times, going to the three receptions of my three kids... Were they were just such good parties, 
Now, part of it was because I was really pleased with the people that I'm marrying. Right? I think it would have been miserable if it would have been otherwise. You know, but I was really pleased about that. We had all the, you know, the best of friends and family all gathered under the one roof, you know, and a few others. But, you know, generally it was good, you know, and, uh, you know, that sort of great sense of the right people, good food, terrific speeches. It was just so much fun. That's the sort of image that we find quite often when we come to the Bible. It's the big celebration with God, where the music is just so stirring, the company's so good, and the food just gets better over time. You know, that sort of picture of banqueting with God. And it's because in the end, when you read the Bible, what you discover is we have a God who likes to party. He likes to celebrate. That's what he's into. That's the setting when we come to Luke chapter 14. Jesus is attending a dinner party and that leads to a discussion about heaven and they're tied together. Let's look at it together. Don't worry if you haven't got, got the, uh, the sections that I'm reading from. Hopefully I'll be able to help you pick it up as we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. There's one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee and he was being carefully watched. That is, Jesus was being carefully watched. Now, it wasn't because they thought he'd steal the silverware or they were trying to check out his table manners and work out if he held the fork the right way or anything like that. That's not what's going on. They're wanting to catch Jesus out and to destroy him. You get to verse 2. There in front of him, in front of Jesus, was a man suffering with dropsy. Now, it's, it's probably an inflammation of the joints, uh, leading to fluid retention, totally debilitating and very obvious that this guy had this disease. Now, the thing you need to know is this guy would never be invited to be the house guest of a prominent Pharisee. Never. Now, the reason for that is what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 13. Uh, because the, the standard view among these Pharisees was that illnesses were a result of sin. You were sick and suffering because of something you had done to offend against God. Therefore, a Pharisee who was concerned about sort of purity, spiritual sort of purity, would never invite a sinner to be his guest. So this is really odd. And so you know the reason why this guy is here is because they're setting up Jesus. They're trying to give him a situation where he will stumble and fall. And Jesus knows it. It's a Sabbath. If he heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking the Sabbath law of rest. So Jesus says, chapter 14, verse 3, to the party guests, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And here is a man right in the midst of them who is in desperate need. Right? He really needs help. And so he says this, do you think I should help him or not? Verse 4, but they remained silent. They are just so mean-spirited and so far from the heart of God. And so Jesus heals the man. And then 
started teaching this group of party goers, dinner party guests, about humility and generosity that are associated with those who know God. He uses a springboard. So in chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus speaks to his host. Remember, this guy is a prominent Pharisee. He's sort of, you know, the archbishop material of the ancient world type guy. And this is what he says to him. When you give a luncheon or a dinner party like this, he's saying, do not invite your friends like them. (laughs) Do you get what he's doing? Yeah, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, let me say, when Jesus said that, I, I don't know what it would have been exactly like, but I reckon you could have cut the tension with a knife after Jesus said this. It'd be like a, me attending a... Um, a June Queen's birthday celebration at Government House. I've been to one of those a few years ago. There were 400, 500 people gathered in Government House and they were all the sort of, you know, I was there, so they were the elite, you know, the business people. I had to get this right, but uh, you understand what I'm saying. This was a select group from around, and I was the exception. So uh, there we are all gathered around and... um, the well-to-do, wealthy, you know, like that's the set that were there. Now, I want you to imagine at these occasions the governor steps up and proposes a toast to the queen. I want you to imagine that here we are, the governor steps up to propose a toast to the queen, and I, from where I'm standing, yell out, this is offensive, right? All you rich people just giving yourself a stroke on the back and having fine wine and food, When there are poor people out in the streets who don't have anywhere to sleep, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Now, how do you think that would go down? uh, And it perhaps explains why I'm not back on the the guest list, perhaps, you know, but that sort of thing would have just been so outrageous to do. Have you ever been at a dinner party around a table when someone drops an absolute clangor Everyone goes, ooh, looks down, you know, like don't know what to do. You know, have you ever been in that sort of situation? I've been in there, often it's me. But, you know, it's a terrible sort of setting. But normally in those dinner parties, there's at least one person around the table who is the rescuer. You know, the the person who just starts talking to fill in the gap. You know, hoping that we can move on to somebody else. You know, that's often the way. I reckon that's what happens here. Yeah. Jesus jumps in, and then we read verse 15. Then one of those at the table heard this, and he thought, <gasps> right? And what he did was, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Right? Let's change the subject. Right? Let's talk about heaven. And what he's saying at this point is, isn't it great? We'll all be there in heaven at the great banquet. And so what Jesus does at this point, he then says, let me tell you who gets to go to the party. Let me fill you in on who is going to be there. Who's going to be at this banquet that God is throwing? Verse 16. There was a certain man preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. 
Now, remember, this is Middle Eastern culture. Uh, they take their party going very seriously. And a refu- refusal of hospitality could result in, you know, one tribe declaring war on another tribe, right? They were really serious about their parties. That's the context. Also, because of the situation they're in, uh, they don't have any freezers, uh, they use a sort of double invitation system, not, not actually that different to what we would do for wedding receptions. You want to know how many are coming so you can cater properly. If there's just a few, you know, you pull out a chicken for two to four. If it's five to eight, you get out the duck. Uh, you know, if there's 10 to 15, a small goat, you know, 15 to 35, kill the sheep, 35 plus, fatter calf. Okay, you know, it sort of just depends. You know how many are coming. You can then prepare properly. So the cooking, they send out the invitation. The cooking's just about done. And then they send the servants out in verse 17 to round up the guests. Come. Everything is now ready. And then there's this unexpected twist. They all begin to make excuses. And let me say, they're terrible excuses, and they're funny as well. We're meant to know that they're funny excuses. Um, The RAA regularly publishes a list, the insurance arm, of the excuses they receive on their forms for why people have accidents, right? And they are very, very good, right? Like this one. I'd been driving for 30 years when I fell asleep at the wheel. Or this one. I ran into a tree where no tree had been before. (laughs) I think this this one's really good. The pedestrian was drunk and wandering all over the road. I had to swerve several times before I finally hit him. (laughs) Yeah, so... You meant to know that these excuses are ridiculous, right? The real estate investor, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, who, who buys a house sight unseen? Not too many people do that, you know. This is the equivalent of, I'm going to stay at home and water my fake grass excuse, right? It's not very good at all. Well, the next one, verse 19, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now, this, this one is just a load of bull. Right? I just had to get that in. But uh, the, uh, it's just, it really is just rubbish, isn't it? I'm trying to imagine if I came home on Monday night and Sue said to me, guess what? Today I just bought a car. I said, you went to a dealer, you know, and just bought a, you know, a car? She said, no, 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 I bought it over the phone. You bought a new car over the phone? No, it's a used car, but the guy said it was very good, you know. Like, no way. You get the RAA in, you do the test drives, you, you know, like you do all those sorts of things. You don't buy a car sight unseen. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So between the first and the second invitation, this young man has fallen hopelessly in love and can't possibly come to this party. Uh, most young brides I know love going to parties, uh, but that's it. it's a comedy routine. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they know that the joke is on them. Because Jesus, God himself, he has turned up in the flesh. He announces the time is ready, that God himself is collecting people for the great banquet, inviting people into relationship with himself, now is the moment because Jesus is, it is party time, is what Jesus is saying. I am here. Let's celebrate.
But Jesus is not what they're expecting. He doesn't really do enough for them. And Jesus says, if you reject him, you reject salvation. You miss out on heaven. That's the point he's making. But it doesn't end there. There is a focus on the excuses that people make. And maybe you're here today and you're not at the point where you've put your trust in Jesus. You wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus. And I guess it's worthwhile asking yourself the question, what is my but? You know, I'd become a follower of Jesus, but. And then what would follow? But in the end, the focus is not on the party guys or the Pharisees. The focus is actually on the generous host. And you pick that up particularly in verses 21 to 24. The host is understandably angry at the refusal of invitation. Not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. But he is incredibly generous. And you see that from verses 21 on. He instructs his servant, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame so that my house will be full. Friends, here, here's the reality. Heaven is going to be full of people who know they cannot offer anything to God. Full of people who realize that. People who know they're there only because God forgives them and welcomes them. People like, like you and like me. That's what heaven is going to be full of. And this is just a compelling vision of what God is doing. God is wanting to fill up heaven because he is generous and gracious to the undeserving. And the question is, are you personally gripped by this reality? As a church, are we stirred by it? Where the, um, the people are instructed by God uh, to invite people to the party, yeah? come, it's ready. How good is it? And then, as you move to the end of chapter 14, Jesus puts the challenge. It's, uh, he drives it home, verse 25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Uh, Remember, to this point, his focus has been on the religious leaders. And now we get a slight shift in focus. It's not the people at the the party. It's the crowds who've been following. And they've been following him since Luke chapter 9. And here we are in Luke 14. And it's a journey that begins chapter 9 and heads towards Jerusalem a little later in the gospel. So we're halfway through that journey. And the crowds are going with him. But he wants to signal that it's not all straightforward. Right? It's, that there are challenging times ahead. Heaven is going to be a great party, but there are difficulties on the road. Want to follow? Want to be one of Jesus' followers? Well, you've got to hate your family. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, 
his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It really doesn't matter uh, how strongly I try to put the whole idea of discipleship. I can't, I can't put it as strongly as this. Um, the church last week, I can't remember this, this gathering or the next one, but Sam and Annie, uh, and it was at Sam Worley and Annie Gow, they announced their engagement, right? And of course there was great celebrations, right? It's terrific. Now, can you imagine if I said to Sam, Sam, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to hate Annie, right? Hate her, hate her, hate her, hate her, you know? This is probably not what a young engaged man is wanting to hear and definitely not what his prospective wife wants to hear, right? Hate her, hate her, hate her. So what people have said is, ah, yeah, of course, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's stretching the point to make a point. He's really saying, love me more than anything else. And, yeah, I get that. Like if I'm saying to Sam, I'm probably going to tell Sam to love Annie rather than hate her. You know, that would be my advice as a marriage celebrant. Generally, you know, that's the way to do it. But Jesus is, is deliberately trying to shock. The word here is hate. He is being provocative in terms of the cost associated with following. Now, understand Jesus is not against family, but he is saying that he, the Lord Jesus, he is the central family figure. He is the one above all allegiance that you must have in your family. That is the point that he's making. So have you counted the cost? Now, do you worry about what people will think because you're a Christian? Is there a shame associated with being a follower of Jesus? Um, Do you make decisions based on the reality that Jesus is the key figure in your family and everything else just falls under that reality? Jesus goes on. He says, are you willing to be humiliated when you follow me? Verse 27, anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross was an instrument of humiliation, shame, torture, death. That's what we're being told. Are you prepared uh, to to suffer the, the mocking that comes with being a follower of Jesus? One woman I know in the Trinity Network, she's now about 90 years of age, been a father of the Lord Jesus. She is a grandmother, great-grandmother. And she is constantly, as the only Christian member of her extended family, as far as she can work out, trying to commend the Lord Jesus to others. And she's, she's very clear, very good-hearted, lovely, warm lady. And she said, but it's very frustrating because they treat me as the doddery old grandmother who's a bit religious, and I really find it irks me. <laughs> but she's, she doesn't hold back. She keeps speaking about the Lord Jesus into that family situation, because she knows how critical it is. Or maybe you're in a situation with a peer group where you don't want to seem to be the religious nut, nut job, you know, the sort of crazy religious person in the group. Can I just say, you are, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're a nutcase, right? Because you believe, you put your whole life centered around a, a man who, who lived 2,000 years ago, a man who 
was ultimately crucified on a cross and killed, right, criminal's death, and then a man, the Son of God, who rose again from the dead. Your whole life is tied up with that truth as a centerpiece. Now, that, that is a bit extreme, don't you think, in terms of our culture and context? You are. You're a religious crazy, right? Just, just own it. And like we're not because it's true. But you understand that's the way you will be perceived. It's hard to double gloss that truth. You know, people try and do it. Listen to the wonderful, deep, wise, truthful things that Jesus says. And that's true. Like what Jesus says is profound and has affected the whole culture. But we're not so much caught up on his teaching as we are on his death and resurrection so that we have forgiveness in life. And when you get to those things, he becomes slightly less popular. Okay? Just recognize that when you stand with Jesus, you don't stand with the crowd. And then he concludes the chapter by urging these guys to count the cost. There are two stories when you get to the end about building a tower and making sure you have the money and the materials to complete it, or a king who's going to war, making sure you have enough guys to win the battle. Otherwise, both are really failed sort of goals. Jesus is saying, work it out carefully if you can go the distance. Verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You can't be a disciple with buts. You know, I'll follow you, Jesus, but don't ask me to. Whatever it is, you know. I sometimes talk to people say, I will follow you, Jesus, but don't ask me to be on the overseas mission field. Or, but don't ask me to change my life. Don't ask me to sell my house. Don't ask me to, you know, just slot it in, whatever it is for you. You cannot answer, I will be a disciple, and put a but at the end of that clause, says Jesus. Count the cost. Understand what it involves. Now, do be clear, God is not mean. This is the God who throws parties. This is the God who is extraordinarily generous. This is God who has made the world for our enjoyment. Um, there, There is no meanness or fickleness about God when it comes to this. But he really must be at the very heart of everything we are and everything we have as the people of God. Friends, when it comes to uh, a relationship with God, there are all sorts of different angles that the Bible comes at this on. You know, what a relationship with God is like. But here in chapter 14, we are being told that being in a relationship with God is like being invited to the best party you have ever been invited to. And it starts now. Right, see, heaven is just a continuity of a relationship with God that begins in this world. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And it just gets better as time goes on. Friends, we are we're the blind... We're the lame, we're the sick, we're the struggling. And we bring nothing to the table. And God, in his mind-blowing generosity, invites us in.
uh, in his great kindness to be his friends. And the more we appreciate that reality, the more we are gripped by that and filled with the joy and the excitement and the centrality of this truth, the more it will just shape everything about our lives. Uh, The more we just dwell on the kindness of God, the more that that happens. And if you want something that really drives this truth home to the heart, just go to Luke chapter 15. And there you see uh, the great story of the prodigal son, where Jesus is making the same point again from another angle. The father out seeking the children that he loves. And friends, if you count yourself as being in his family, you are one of those children. Seeking people to be with him forever at the great party. And of course, when we get that, uh, all you want to do is see everyone in Allgate and the whole of the hills just know how good the party is. You want them to come, don't you? Because it is just so good. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way in which when we turn to your word, we get lots of different images about what it's like to be in your family. And Father, we pray that uh, you'll help us to appreciate how extraordinarily kind and generous and gracious you've been to us and how good it is uh, to be in your family. Uh, Father, we pray you'll help us to keep celebrating that, celebrating when we meet together Sunday by Sunday because we've got something good to really relish and enjoy, Uh, something that we celebrate as we... Uh, talk to others about it. Father, we know for many we'll seem like weirdos uh, because we've put our trust in your son. And yet, Father, we know uh, that this is the centrepiece of all of life. And Father, we we pray that people will see the extraordinary joy, even when we're suffering or making sacrifices, the great joy that we have because the, the key part of life is nailed down for all eternity. So, Father, help us to be that sort of people, we pray, in every aspect of our lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.